I think collectively as a society, among the many, many things that we still haven't come to grips with is what happened to our ancestors. What happened to our ancestors impacts us every day as a society. And in addition to not necessarily socializing our children to deal with our feelings, we as a society are so uncomfortable with the past that on the one hand, we deny certain aspects of the past. And on the other, what we do is we say, let sleeping dogs lie, right? Don't stir it up. I don't know how we heal unless we reconcile with the experience of our ancestors, the positive and negative experiences of our ancestors. Welcome to the Reboot Podcast. We are so glad you're here. Like so many growing up in Southwestern Ohio in the 80s, I went to Catholic school. Now my kids love hearing about it. They love hearing about the uniforms or the rules. But truthfully, I don't really remember very much from that time. But there is one memory that stands out. Now, at the time, it was an extremely hard, embarrassing, painful moment. A comment from a teacher that, with the benefit of hindsight, really were insightful words of wisdom from somebody who really cared. I was in seventh grade doing my best to really not stand out, but actually to fit in and to be cool. And at my school, being cool meant not caring about school, not being good at it. And getting in trouble was actually a badge of honor. Now, I was never one for causing trouble but I desperately wanted to fit in and did not stand out. But I'd, one day, my carefully managed persona was pierced in a moment. While in an English class, my teacher, Miss Albert, after reviewing something that I had written while sitting on this high stool, she looked me straight in the eye in front of the whole class and said, Daniel, you have the soul of a poet. I hope you continue to let it shine through. There was not a hole big enough in the floor for me to hide in. Growing up like so many men, I worked hard to put on a tough mask. One that I could show the world a tough, strong exterior and protect my tender heart. Without it ever being discussed, I just understood that the path to success was in being fearless, strong, perhaps even an asshole who had little time or interest in feelings. And when I looked at other successful men, I rarely saw those who had the soul of a poet, those who cried when they were hurt, cried when they were happy cried when they loved. To have the soul of a poet wasn't a gift, it was a burden. When I looked in the mirror, I saw a boy or a man with a tender heart, and I felt shame. To be sensitive, to reveal that soul of the poet, was to be weak, doomed to be uncool as a seventh grader, doomed to be uncool as a high schooler, doomed to failure as an adult. Boy, was I wrong. Now, I've come so far from that seventh grade boy in a stiff Catholic school uniform, wanting to be swallowed up by a hole in the floor. I learned how to take off my mask, embrace the poet's soul, and to show my heart even when it is hard, even when it is scary. And I realized that not only is the poet wise, creative, brilliant, caring, loving, but indeed, he's very strong. Stronger than I could have ever known. Strong enough to face the world, and strong enough to feel it. Strong enough to not only be himself, but to support others in taking off their mask 
and being themselves as well. The seventh grade boy hid his heart out of fear. The 40-year-old man shows his heart in strength. And I'd like to say now what I couldn't find the words to say then. Thank you, Miss Aubert, for seeing in me what I was afraid to see myself. Ashanti Branch is a man of great energy and purpose, the kind of purpose and power that only comes from taking off one's mask and living openly and courageously as oneself. Raised in Oakland by a single mother on welfare, Ashanti left the inner city to study civil engineering at Cal Poly. A construction manager before in his first career, his life changed after he tutored struggling students and realized his passion was in teaching. In his first year as a teacher, he started the Ever Forward Club to provide support for African-American and Latino males who were not achieving to their full potential. In this conversation with Jerry, Ashanti shares his own story and how he ultimately learned the best way to support those he works with was to take off his own mask and to show his heart. Enjoy. At Reboot, we often talk about the value of relationships in mirroring back to us our blind spots. Now, all honest feedback is valuable, and it's great if your culture supports a constant flow of feedback. But it's often helpful for leaders to take deeper dives into radical self-inquiry, giving themselves focused and intentional space to examine the patterns of behavior that are either serving them or not serving their teams and their missions. 360 reviews are a really powerful tool that can help leaders make course corrections, supporting both individual growth and the growth of the company. While there are many approaches to 360s out there, what we have found to be the most helpful to our clients is to approach the 360s as an extension of the coaching conversation. Most leaders don't care how they rate numerically on a list of abstract capacities. And even if they do, it's tough for them to really know how to make use of that kind of data. But if they can hear through the voices of their colleagues how their behavior is making impact, and if they can be helped by a coach to see more clearly the choices available to them for change, the benefits can be immense. If you'd like to learn more about Reboot 360s, you can go to reboot.io slash 360. Hello, brother. It's great to see you. It's good to see you too, Jerry. Ashanti, before we start, can you just take a moment and introduce yourself? Yeah. Um, so my name is Ashanti Branch. I'm from Oakland, California. I'm raised by a single mother. Grew up a fatherless son. My father died before I was born. Uh, when I got my act together, I decided I was going to go to college. I wanted to be rich, you know, because I, I knew that poor wasn't fun. And um, <laughs> they told me if you go to college and get a good job, make a lot of money, you can live happily ever after. I was like, sign me up for that plan. And um, I was good at math. It was a way to be able to push myself past like, okay, I can do this. And um, went to college, became an engineer, civil engineering. I studied at Cal Poly San Luis Obispo, which is like one of the top engineering schools in California. Mm -hmm. And then I started working and making money. And then I was like, wait a minute, this is not happy ever after. This is like happy at Friday around 5 p.m. And then, you know, <laughs> Sunday around 7 p.m. It starts fading away. And it wasn't the work. It was that it wasn't fulfilling overall. I thought, I thought the dream of happy ever after literally meant what that meant, right? And I was like, this is not working. And um, something in t teaching called me. I mean, it was a long journey story, but I'm making it really fast. Um, teaching called me. And I was like, wait, teachers don't make money? Like, I want to be, I'm definitely not going to be rich teaching. So it was like one of the confusing callings on your life where I was like, I think I'm supposed to do something different. 
Mm-hmm. And teaching was like, this is it. I'm like, no, it can't be that because that doesn't make money. And I was like, I was equating my 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 journey to like overcoming the growing up poor. And it means that you can't go back there. Right. <laughs> like that's the, that was the growing up that journey of like. You you wanted to get out and you never wanted to get back. Never ever wanted to go back. And I knew teach, my mom was a teacher. So I knew teachers didn't make money. And I had made a declaration at 15 years old that, I'm never going to be a teacher because I couldn't even get in this program called Upward Bound, which helps first generation students go to college because they were like, well, you're, you're not first generation. I'm saying, oh, we're poor. We're definitely first generation. They're like, well, your mom went to college. I'm like, you mean my mom went to college and we're this broke, you know? Like, so I was clear that whatever my mom was doing, I was not going to be doing, you know, but it was, it was that, it was that thing. And, um, and what I realized was that I was supposed to be a teacher and, um, you know, I, I was raising my siblings at seven years old. I was helping cooking, cleaning. I was helping raise a house, you know? Yeah, um, yeah. And, and then long story short, I became a teacher. And my first year teaching, I was doing a horrible job. I was like, what happened? Like, you know, <laughs> like I came to this job because they called me. I definitely didn't plan this for myself. But it was because I had some young men in my class who were really smart and they were failing. And I'm like, you can't fail my class. You're smart. Like, you're brilliant. I can see it in you. But they couldn't see it in themselves. And there's a rule at our school that you can't show how smart you are. So they acted like they weren't. And I started this program called Ever Forward. And it was about, look, I'll buy you lunch once a week. I told them, in exchange for lunch, you're going to teach me how to be a better teacher. Like, what am I doing wrong? Because I, mm-hmm. I think I'm smart without trying to brag. I, I, I say, I'm, I'm smart. You're yeah. smart. Why are we creating failure? Like, you should not be mm-hmm. failing my class. And, and Ever Forward started out of these lunchtime meetings, which was around dude, there's so much more going on that I'm missing. And then them helping me figure out what I was doing wrong as a teacher, like what things I can improve on. And, and we began to meet in the middle. And, what, and you know, what, and they, what's the one thing you figured out about that whole, about that sort of the mutual failure that was going on? Yeah, um, that I had forgot what it was like to be a student. Yeah. I forgot that when I was in school, like I would hide my test in my backpack so my friends wouldn't see that I was doing good in school. Like that I was pressured sometimes to my friends to like, help them get answers on a test. And I'm like, I don't want to get suspended. And I was yeah. trying to, you know, do the right thing. And I realized that a lot of them really wanted to do the right thing, but the pressure of around the surroundings were daunting. And there's a rule at that school that smart's not cool. So if you want to be cool, and you're a young man growing up in this community, you definitely don't be you no know, friendly with the teacher. You definitely don't pal up with the teacher, right? Who's the authority figure. And cause you have to be show how tough you are. And no matter what they ask you to do, you have to fight against it. And I was like, Oh, that's what's happening. And so I realized that my job was to take off this authority hat in most cases that I don't need to have power over. We're going to have power with, and we're going to start helping you. So if you don't, if you can't carry a backpack, then we're going to do the homework here after school. I'm going to give you detention so people think you're in trouble and you're going to come here and do your homework and then you go home with no homework, right? Like we're going to find you way to navigate the system. And that's what I learned that they, and that they, when they realized that each other was going through stuff, it opened the door. And I was like, this is what I wish I had when I was your age. Somebody like to, that saw that there was so much going on in my, my head, my heart, my house <laughs> that I didn't get to talk about. Let, let, let me repeat it back to you. Cause I think I, I think I've got it. And because I, I pick up the story that I, I knew none of this before. Mm. And I pick up the story in our life 
when you and I first met long after that. And, um, and, and I see the connection immediately to whatever forward is really about. And, and in a sense, what I'm hearing is that you began to teach at a deeper level, which is to teach these young men, or as our, as our brothers would say, young kings, young mm. peace kings, yeah. uh, to, to drop the mask. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so, yeah. you know, we met, I'm going to tell this story. We met December, 2019. Uh, I and, and a dear friend of mine, Crystal Bell, were leading a facility, a, a retreat at 1440. Yeah. Um, and uh, it was focused uh, primarily on nonprofit executives because it was part of their service week. And on one of the flights that fall, I happened to watch a documentary called The Mass We Live In, which uh, features your work with young peace kings and young men of color yeah. who are really struggling with uh, the messages that they receive. Yeah. And at one point, I look out and I realize, wait, that's a Shanti branch. <laughs> <laughs> yeah oh man i didn't know that because that first night i was like you know i go to these things a lot and i'm like one of the only you know black men in the space maybe there's been one other yeah. but it was very few and i'm like okay i don't i don't know what i'm gonna say i want to say something and i'm mostly just listen take notes i take all take notes and something that first day something said open your mouth right it was just mm -hmm. like don't come here and go back the same leader you were, right? Yeah. Like, if you're gonna learn it, like learn it and like, like, like voice it, right? And I was like, be brave, be bold. That's what I tell my young people all the time, be bold, yeah. right? Like, I forgot what I said, but I remember just like, you heard me. Cause sometimes I go to these things and I say something and people were like, oh, okay. And then they move on to the next thing, right? I don't know if that's what they do, but I just, I, that's what I feel, um, yeah. but, but you heard me. And you just stopped. You're just like, take a breath right there. And when somebody like, like holds a space for that moment. And I remember just like, to like really feeling in that space. Yeah. It was powerful. It was life changing. And after that, I, I started, I got the book and I was like, I read, I read the book like in a week, right? It was like, yeah. oh my God, this is the, this is what I've been trying to talk about, right? This is, yeah. it just made so much sense. And um, I'm glad, because originally I wasn't going to go to that session. I was, that was a, part of the weekend and I was like, well, there's all these other things and something just said, go there, go there. But I do remember that moment when our eyes locked and it felt electric, brother. Yeah. And I looked at you and I just said, I see this man. Yeah. And I remember what we said. I don't even remember that, <laughs> but it was a room full of 70 participants. Yeah. I'm up on stage, the sage on the stage. <laughs> I'm, you know, an old white guy with white hair. And no shoes. And no shoes, because God did not invent the human species to wear shoes. I'm just going to say that out loud. <laughs> I still don't have shoes on. And, uh, and there you were. And I just, I was like, I know this man. Yeah. And uh, it, it was like, yeah, this is actually a kindred soul. Thank you, man. Thank you.
Because the, the, the work that you do with the, those young men, right? I mean, I work within the container of entrepreneurs and leadership, but really, you know, I'm just smuggling in consciousness to quote my former partner, <laughs> Khaled. The work you do is as a teacher, but really you're just smuggling in consciousness. Yeah. You know, what we're both trying to do is hold people's hearts. Yeah. You know? And I think the, the the exciting part about that, and for me, the, what I didn't know when I first started, is I didn't know, I didn't have anybody to help hold mine. Yeah. So I started Ever Forward 2004, first year teacher, still not figure, not knowing what I'm doing as a teacher still, but no, I know the material, but the relationships, I was still figuring out. And when those young men began to come every week, not only for lunch, but for these conversations, like I was carrying all of their stuff. And no one even taught me how to let go of my own stuff. So I'm carrying my stuff and their stuff. And literally, I remember year, maybe year two and a half, year three, ended up in an ambulance on the way to the hospital. Like not knowing what happened, but just knowing that I was about to like pass out in the middle of class. We were actually doing a circle in class. We were doing a circle mm-hmm. where I let them, you know, once a quarter at the court to end, like we do this circle where we come together and we talk about, we go deep. Right. And they're like, they come in the room. It's like, what's going on? Why are the, why are the desks in a, in a circle? And we go deep. And it's like, they realized there was something different that day. And, and I remember I was taking all their stuff in. They're telling, oh, they're just like letting go of it. And I'm like, okay, mm-hmm. I, I'll carry it for you. And literally mm-hmm. I told my IWE, which is like the student worker. Um, mm-hmm. I said, hey, um, go to the office, or go to the phone and call the office and tell them to send an ambulance. He's like, what? I was like, listen, just listen. Go to the go to the phone, call the office, tell them to send an ambulance. I'm about to pass out. Like literally, I remember saying it to him, and he's like, I said, go now. And so the student, you know, the last student was going, and I remember, like, man, thank you, oh, thank you, thank you. Okay, everyone, take a deep breath. Okay, here's what we're gonna do. I'm gonna let you all um, leave class a little early today. Just stand outside. Don't go anywhere, but stand. Now my students know that. Mr. Branch doesn't even let people leave when the bell rings. <laughs> so the fact that I'm telling them that they should go outside the class early, <laughs> like they, there's, there's like, you trying to set us up? You setting us up for something? Like they thought, I'm like, no, for real, for real, for real. Like go outside, just to get your backpacks. Everyone just go out. Don't do anything. Just go outside. And literally they started knowing something was up, but I, I, I didn't want to pass out in front of them. And literally, I literally, as soon as they all went out the door, I laid on the floor, on this beanbag on the floor. And I was just like, oh my God, what's going on? And literally, it was because I had nowhere to take all my stuff. So I'm carrying my own life trauma, drama stuff, all of theirs that they've been willing to share with me so I can hold space for them because I had no space. And it wasn't until, I mean, that was 2006, seven, I think I went to the hospital that year. And then 2010 is when I joined a men's team. I, I, didn't, even, I didn't even know men's teams really existed. Right. I was creating what I didn't even know existed, but I was creating what I knew I needed when I was in high school. So it's almost like this weird kind of like I think they say your like the ancestors, your energy, your body, like your body knows. And it's like something that's just part of you. Right. It felt right what I was doing for them, even though I didn't have it for myself. But I didn't know where I was getting it from. I was just kind of like, okay, we're going to just make this space. Now, this would. This happened during class, not during Ever Forward Club, because I was doing Ever Forward Club every week. This is me doing this circle in my class. And that's when, and you know, there was nothing happened. The doctor said, we don't find anything. You're, you're fine. And, yeah. what, what did you discover in 2010 in the men's group? Um, 
I got invited to this men's circle, a man, he was a teacher. He was like, hey, you know, I'm a part of this men's circle, you know, I love to invite you. And I'd heard about men's circle before, but it mm -hmm. was like exclusive, right? So it was like a uh, buddy of mine was a part of this men's circle. And I was like, oh, can I, can I go? He was like, oh, no, this is private. I'm like, mm -hmm. oh, I felt kind of weird about it. And I was like, mm -hmm. all right. So when this other invitation came in 2010, like a couple of years later, I was like, yeah, I'll go. And I went mm -hmm. and it was just amazing. What I learned in that circle was that that you can trust men. I mean, I didn't grow up with a father in my house, so there was no, I didn't really trust men. I mean, there was, there was very few men who I had really deep connections with outside of like, you know, either, you know, partying on the weekends or hanging out and, you know, like fun, like fun stuff. Right. But like talking, talking details and intimate stuff, like, and have this circle my first time there and men are like, like what is going on here? Like how, do, where has this been all my life? And when I, when I was there, Literally, I, I saw what I was doing at Ever Forward. What do you mean? What were you doing at Ever Forward? What did you see? Yeah, I saw men going around the circle, checking in. Yep. Telling how they were doing, how their day was, what's going good, what's struggle, what they're struggling with, which is exactly what we're doing at Ever Forward. And they had the mm -hmm. structure around it, around we're going to, we're going to create this space. And I was, I was new. So I'm like, just, I'm watching, but I'm like, but I'm not only watching, I'm feeling it. Right. I'm like, right. I'm like, this is what I've been trying to build. Now this is like 50 men. This is what, at the time that I went to this circle, it was like 50 men in this circle. It was a, there was a fire in the middle. Like it was like wild. Right. And we're, I'm only meeting in a classroom with pizza mm -hmm. or food. Right. But it was like, this, this is what I was trying to build. I think I found that there, there could be trust there. The young men were starting to trust, right? I, I knew that that was important, but I didn't have a place that I could go to find trust, right? I, I heard someone say this once, but like sometimes we create what we, what we need or what we yeah. needed, right? And I think that what happened whenever forward was I knew that I needed that in high school, but I didn't, it didn't exist. And when I created it, I didn't, have, I didn't have all the right answer. I didn't have all the right words for it. But I remember it being like, some people were like confused as to why you need, why is a, why do boys need a space? But because young men are not talking about how they feel on a regular basis in my community. In my community, it's seen as weak, soft. There's a bunch of other vulgar names they'll call you. If you yeah. ever, if you ever dare talk about feelings, show feelings, they'd be like, you all up in your feelings. It's a, it's an insult to people. Yeah. As opposed to being like, man, I'm so glad you letting your feelings show. Right. Yeah. Cause what we see in our, my community, our, you know, our jails are full of men. In the United States, 94% of people in prison are men. 94% of, they either there's something wrong with men, which I don't think Genetically, that, biologically. 94%, right? right. that's, a, that's a, I mean, I, I don't like a lot of data to, because people mess with data, but 94% of people who are locked in cages every night, something gotta be said about what's going on. But I think it's because when men are boys, they're told, suck it up. Stop well, crying you, like a little, you know, you, all the you, things that they do to, to to conform you to be like, don't show emotions. And then we wonder how they can be adults and be emotionless. That you, you said it, brother, you, you know, I mean, this, this is, this is kindred soul speaking here mm. um, because, because, and, and you, you put a new flavor on it, which is that you, and I'll put myself in the same category, you and I have created in our lives, the very structures that we needed when we were younger. And, and, you know, you said something really powerful just now. You talked about the lack of socials, the, the way boys are socialized to, to respond to their feelings. 
And there's a consequence to that, which is, uh, you know, now 94% of incarcerated folks are men. Um, I don't know the percentage, but we both know that the vast majority of them are folks of color, in particular black and brown. And that has as much to do with um, the systemic oppression and racism in our society. But what you're also speaking to is the consequence, you know, what we later label as toxic masculinity, right? Which is we, we don't teach these skills. And you said something really powerful. I didn't know you could trust men. <laughs> yeah. Right. This yeah. is a man talking to another man yeah. saying, I didn't know you could trust men. And for those folks who are listening, who don't identify as men, the men that you love in your life are hurting because the vast majority of us don't know that we can trust other men. Because, and we don't know that we can trust other men because we've experienced violence at the hands of other men. Yeah, yeah. that's exactly right. Mm. And imagine even that part where you, if you didn't know that you could trust men and yet those are the spaces that you have to find yourself in to fit in. And then everywhere you go, you're almost like, well, I have to be on, put on this show when you talked about the mask, right? When we first started ever forward, I wasn't using the language around masks that came later, but it was what it was. It was like, I gotta, oh, I gotta talk about sports. Okay. I gotta talk about sports. I talk about girls. I gotta talk about girls. If I'm hanging with this crew, I gotta talk about money and cars and blah, 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 and rap and whatever, whatever, I, whoever I hang with, I gotta talk about the things they want to talk about. And then if you're not, if you're not, clear about your own being self-aware like where do i talk about the stuff that's important to me right right where do i talk about the stuff that that i want to talk about right right yeah you know uh, it it's it's like you know i grew up in brooklyn you grew up in oakland you know uh, we both had our own experiences as children being wounded um you know i grew up with with white privilege that you know, was to which I was blind at the time. Um, uh, and yet, you know, uh, uh, despite the differences, there are so many similarities in our experience. And, and I, I, I think that maybe because I took my shoes off, uh, <laughs> there was, a, and I suspect it had more to do with the fact that in that position of power where I'm sitting on a stage, yeah, right, commanding the room in a way, by virtue of the power projected onto me by 70 yeah. people showing up, yeah, and by me showing up and being real and yeah. naming the stuff that I have going on, yeah, I'm hoping that that was the thing that created some safety for you to actually raise your hand and make a connection that we both needed you to make. Yeah, I think it was, yeah, I walked in. When I came, I came in through the door, there's a door at the top, you know, you're yeah. on 1440. It's just a, a multiversity learning space, really beautiful in the Redwoods. It used to be a Bible college and they've just turned this place into an amazing space. So you come into the upstairs and then it's mm -hmm. like, you know, five steps and then you kind of go down and out. And I saw you on the stage. And I'm like, is this he? 
what kind of shoes are those? I was like, he's not wearing any, he's not wearing any shoes. I was like, okay, what, is this the right session? I was making sure we're in the right session. And I was like, I don't remember the topic saying anything like this, right? Because it was about CEO stuff and leadership. And I'm like, okay, I don't think it, you know, nobody will read this as a description of the people who are, I'm like, okay. I, don't know. <laughs> I didn't know what I was walking into. <laughs> and then you were reading a poem. You know, you know what? You know what? You were reading. Oh, I remember like this. You were reading Mary. Let me get. I don't have their last name. Mary was, Oliver. Mary Oliver. I actually read uh, uh, Lead. Lead. Yeah. Yeah. And so, so a lot of people sort of encounter me shoeless. By the way, there's a good word for that. It's called displaced. That's how uh, nerdish I am, displaced. Um, but uh, they'll encounter me and they'll say, what the heck did I drop into the land of Oz, right? This guy's reading poems, he's crying, he's talking about leadership. Um, but you know, the, 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 the method to the madness behind what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to break uh, stereotypes. I'm trying to break expectations. I'm purposefully leaning against the socialization because I think it's the socialization, whether it's me being racialized as white or you being socialized as, you know, suck it up. Men don't cry. Boys don't cry. Right. Um, It harms each of us as individuals. Yeah. You know, white supremacy harms white people. It harms non-white people, but it harms white people. You know, patriarchy is a, is a jail Mm. for all of us. Yeah. Yeah. The box, that box that it's, it's the box. It's the box. You said a word earlier. I want to talk about, because you said in that context of like toxic masculinity, right. And I've chosen, I don't use that word for, for only for a certain audience who can't handle that word. Because oftentimes when people use that, people who want to hear it wrong, hear what they'll hear. Right. What do you mean men are toxic? Right. right. And I think the sad part of like language is that people like will grab onto that thing that they can like fight against. And you're like, yeah, that's not anything near what is being said or what I'm saying. And what I've realized, I heard, I was on talking to someone the other day and they were like, They've, they've readjusted, they call it confined masculinity, right? Yeah. Yeah. This, yeah. this conf- like all I can do is be funny, happy, tough, strong, muscular, you know, I, 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 all these things, where, where are the rest of the lists? Where are the rest of the lists of characteristics right. that I can be? And I think for, I had, I had almost an argument in the middle of Costco with somebody because <laughs> he, he said, don't tell me you're going to talk about this toxic masculinity stuff. And I'm like, I didn't even use that word, but. Tell me more about what you what you think it means, right? Yeah. And and all he was hearing was that people were trying to say that men are toxic, and I'm like, I don't think that's what that means. I don't, you know. Yeah. But ultimately, you you ready to argue? So I'm not gonna even go in yeah. that lane with you. I'm gonna just yeah. stand over here and just reflect back what I'm hearing from you. And then I just I gave him some data: suicide rates, addictions, incarceration rates. And he couldn't. He had nothing. He definitely didn't disagree with those things that are a problem. But he wanted to fight on the word. And I'm like, like how many people get missed the opportunity to evolve in their thinking right. because a word has like locked them out and they have like, 
you're trying to, and I, and I think that's what we miss so many times, so often. Oh, I, I, I think you're right. What I, what I typically don't use that phrase yeah. because I'm trying to push against the notion of association of those two, two things. What I often say is there's nothing masculine yeah. about toxic behavior. Yeah. Right? Um, yeah. And, 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 you know, by pushing at that, um, what what I'm hoping to to raise is consciousness about what is uh, healthy, what is what does it mean to truly be a good man? Yeah. And you know what the the teacher and writer who comes to mind right now is Richard Rohr or R O H R, who's uh, I think a Dominican priest, the Order of Saint Dominic. Um, uh, in which he he defines the uninitiated men, yeah. right? And and what he speaks to is uh, that part of our challenge is not just that our boys are socialized to actually be distant from their true selves yeah. and hide behind those masks, but that that as boys uh, enter manhood, um, we lack the rituals that yeah. initiate uh, boys into manhood. Uh, we lack the the elders sitting in a circle, um, which I know you have done, um, and to and to to point and say, sit up straight, eyes forward, do your work, yep. be loving, be caring, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, uh, our society is so disconnected from what indigenous cultures have been doing for millennia, right? And there's this, there's this break that happens. Yeah. Um, I, I wanna bring us forward into, to, to back into this notion of circles of men, if you will. And, and I know that we each have um, benefited from being in such circles. And of course we have our, our own group, Yeah. right? Yeah. which I'll, I'll put a little context. Um, it was about a year ago that a number of folks, um, uh, and, and, and it surprised me because uh, they were black, they are black, yeah. reached out to me over social media and I made connections in ways that I, I was surprised by. Yes, they read the book and I felt, some resonance. And there was a realization that um, perhaps there was a, a, a way that we could come together in a group. Yeah. Um, and through actually multiple points, um, we invited you into the group as well. Yeah. yeah. It's been amazing. When I first knew that I would be able to reconnect with you there, but also in this circle of just like, being human. I think that in your book, you know, when people, when I, when I read it, I felt like, like I knew you, like, even though I don't I saw you on stage for those two or three days, like when I read the book, I was like, okay, mm -hmm. I get, I get it more. I get it even more. It makes mm -hmm. more sense. Right. Mm -hmm. the, the, the quotes and the poems and the poems, right. All the, mm -hmm. the, the connections. It was just like, yeah. And I think there's just these, and because I listen to the podcast so many times, just like the the nuggets of of like, oh, that's mm. the that's the piece that I needed right there in this moment. And even sometimes I need the pieces again, right? I'm like, 
I'm not like, I haven't learned that lesson yet. So I'm like, you have to relearn them. But I think in that space of being able to come together, I learned that, you know, I, I've been a part of men's circles since 2010. And I've been, you know, a couple of different organizations, right? Like, you know, mm-hmm. the first it was, you know, MDI. That's my main, that's a team I started in 2010. Then the Mankind Project. And then, you know, last year, every man I went to there before the pandemic. And then this, like a month ago, a couple of weeks ago, I went to this event from Sacred Sons that blew my mind, mm. man. And what I, what I realized for myself was that the work needs to keep going. It can't be like, I went to one event and now I'm good. It's not like, <laughs> I mean, it's like initiation into manhood is this idea that you go through this and now the community holds you in honor as a man, but you don't just get to sit in the laurels of like, I am now a man and therefore I don't have to do anything more. It's like, you keep serving, giving, you keep. That's right. Can I, can I share a poem with you? Please, please. It's called The Warrior by Hafiz. But the words are, resonate with me a lot. It says, um, the warriors tame the beast in their past so that the knight's hoofs can no longer break the jeweled vision in the heart. The intelligent and the brave open every closet in the future and evict all the mind's ghosts who have the bad habit of barfing everywhere. Mm-hmm. For a long time, the universe has been germinating in your spine, but only a saint has the talent, the courage, to slay the past giant, the future anxieties. The warrior wisely sits in a circle with other men, gathering the strength to unmask himself, then sits giving like a great illumined planet on the earth. That's uh, the warrior by Hafiz. That's amazing. Oh man. Like, all the stuff that keeps coming back and coming up. If if you were like, if you, if you were, uh, if you were really wise and brilliant, you'd be like, I don't want to think about the old stuff. I'm not going to worry about the future stuff. Let me just be right here in present. But that's hard to do. It takes a lot of work. Yeah. It, takes, it takes daily work. Right. But to recognize that if I could come together with men to like, just have a space to like take off my mask and be like, I, I got stuff going on. I need to talk about, I don't have it all together. I don't have it all figured out. And to know that they got you. They, they don't need to fix you. They don't need to like tell you how to fix it, but they can ask you questions. They can illuminate the, the, what, what you're saying so they can see, hey, you did, you know, you said this. I'm like, no, I don't know. Oh, did I say that? Like, mm-hmm. it's a really, to reflect back, to hold the, the mirror up sometimes and sometimes to like, let it be a window so you can see through it, right? Because sometimes if we get stuck in the mirror, we're just like, we see the messages that are the internal messages. But what what if you could like just say, hold on, let me, what if I see past this? What if I can see past what I'm stuck in right now? What would it look like over there? Oh, okay. It will look very different. And to have men just help you navigate those words that you're saying, but that sometimes seem to be going in circles. I mean, I think that that's the power of the circle. And that's the power of what these men come together, get to do what, what I, I found that they've done for me. And when I have a chance, I try and do it for others. And to help illuminate, because sometimes we just need that, that space. I mean, at the time around the proverbial fire, right? And we yeah. started meeting during the pandemic. So it's been on Zoom, right? It's been on, yeah. it's been just looking at each other on a screen. But like, I think sometimes people can underestimate the power of just connection. Yeah. Even if I can't be in the proximity of you close, I can, I can hold space with you. And I think yeah. that's been so beautiful. Yeah. Uh, thank you for sharing all of that. Because I, I think you've, you, you, you say it so well. You say it 
with, with such heart and with such tenderness and such bravery. Um, you know, I'm so admiring of the work that you have, have done. It's so clear. And, and um, you know, to go back to our group for a moment, one of the things that not only did we start during the pandemic, but we also started uh, right after the murder of George Floyd. And, yeah. uh, you know, while our experience of racism isn't, you know, the thing we talk about as, as, as if it was an agenda, yeah. um, to be, to be, uh, for me, being the white identifying person in the room um, is a really important experience and to, and, and, and to, to watch you brave, we call ourselves the warriors to watch the, you brave warriors, right? Uh, peace Kings, each one of you to, um, to speak truth, um, is an incredible honor. I mean, I, I come away from each of our meetings convinced that in a past life, I must have been really a spectacular person because I am being given such a gift. Man, well, I feel the same. And actually, I just made the connection. I didn't even, I didn't make the connection with that poem and the name of our circle. So that's actually, mm. thank you for that connection. When I was about five or six years old, um, my mom made, after we came in from school, she made us watch the whole Roots when Roots came out on PBS, like oh, we watched sure, it, sure. right? Yeah. And my mom grew up in Little Rock, Arkansas. My mom was raised in a place. My mom had to leave Arkansas because my, my grandmother was like, girl, you're going to get us killed with your with your big mouth. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> my mom, she didn't tolerate people talking to her any old way. Right. <laughs> but she, even though she, like, you know, she left there for those reasons, she taught me to treat people kind of how they treat you. I mean, and, and I think, you know, people have evolved that thought, but treat people how they want to be treated. Yes, but don't disrespect people just because of the color of their skin. You need to know your history and you need to be a part of how we don't go back and how we need to like learn from each other. And we treat people well, like they treat us, you know? Right. Some people don't deserve to be in your life. If right. they're treating you poorly, then you need to move to another place regardless of what they look like. Right. And I think that just being in that circle with you and really having you understand and get it, like get it in a way that not only I get it intellectually because I'm a smart person, but I get it in my heart and I want to make the world a better place. And I think one of the things that I, I, I've tried to do, um, they invited me to this one private school in the Bay Area to like, to talk about racism. And I'm like, no, we're not doing it like that. Like, you don't just bring a black man into your school with a bunch of white boys and be like, tell them about racism. <laughs> right, right. You want to have one way of creating a, a battle? <laughs> like, you know what I'm like, that's not how it works. It, right. That's not how it's going to work. That's, how you, that's right. not how the, because any of them, if I was a Harvard professor who was interviewing them, would have the perfect answer about their thoughts about the, the danger and the, the unhealthy behaviors of racism. They, they, all of them. If right. I was holding a power play over them. Right. But what do you do when you're with your friends hanging out on a Friday talk, talking about whatever? Right. 
that's like the, 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 in the, in the recesses of your heart, your, your common, your most common and most uh, prevalent narrative about what you think about it is not going to be fixed by me going and telling them the racism is bad because they're all smart enough to know that that type of thing is not of any benefit, even if they benefit from the, from the way they exist. And I said to them, we got to take it slow. Like you don't like that. You're setting up for a failure. You're setting not only me up for failure, you're setting up the experience for failure because there's nothing like, there's nothing I can tell them that intellectually they don't already know. Right. The question is where are their hearts around it? Because right. they don't understand the lens that they see the world from the lens that they see the world from is from their body. If you grew up in a society that you don't have to worry about the, the peace right. officers, cause they're always peaceful with you. You don't have to worry about the system because the system benefits you. You don't have to worry about the opportunities because opportunities are in a line for you. Then when I try and talk about it being me being afraid of the police, it makes no sense. Like, why are you afraid of police? You didn't do anything wrong. Why you should be worried? Because <laughs> you right. can't see it because it's a lens. It's just exactly how it works. That's how lenses work. They help you see in a certain way that your eyes, your vision needs to be able to see. And I think that it's just been beautiful. So when I, when I've been doing that work with them, it's just like, like, how could we, what, what would it take to get other intelligent people, men, men who have privilege and men who have, uh, white skin, white skin. That's a great way to say it, to say, you know what, I'm not only going to know it in my mind intellectually when I'm in a conversation that needs to have this said, but I'm going to operate under that same, um, behavior and thoughts in my actions. I think that's what I was hoping to do with those students. And we've, we had three sessions and I, I, I think I did a really good job around that, around coming in with love, mm -hmm. right? Cause if, if someone hates you, you can just say, well, I hate you too. Right. But how do you come in with love in a way that is healthy and not only that is not harmful to you? Because one way of like saying, well, you hate me, I'm going to keep loving you anyway. And it becomes harmful to yourself. I'm not talking about that kind of stuff where you're self-sacrificing, where you're where you're a martyr. I'm talking about, mm -hmm. but out of like in the return of this idea that you don't know me. Let me maybe help you see that what you see on the outside is is an element that you're making a difference at what we're how we're different. But there's so many things that we're like so many right. things we have in common that we miss. And um, that circle is just a beautiful place for us to do that. And so I, yeah, I just want to, I appreciate you for, for being in the conversation, being in there and being with us. And um, it's been beautiful for me. In the time that we have been together, one, you, 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 you said something about how I, um, I'm, I'm, I'm attempting to see as best as I can. That's my modification of what you said through the lens of, of uh, the brothers with whom I sit. Yeah. Um, to experience, um, to come as close as the racialization that I have experienced, being identified as white, long before I even understood what those words meant, right? Even as a baby. To, to identify as that and to try to step from around that lens yeah. and, 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 and to imagine, uh, right? I mean, it was just happening. You were just talking about being afraid of police and I saw your dreadlocks. And I said, you know, fuck being pulled over for an air freshener. 
I could, I, you know, you know, it was like I, I could just see you being stopped or being afraid of being stopped. Yeah. Which, which is probably even more pervasive than the act of being stopped is the fear of being stopped. Yeah. And when I was in, when I was in high school, I, I, I mean, I, (laughs) I've always thought I was a little smart and I had a smart mouth and I was like, you know, like I, I knew my, I knew my rights. But man, when I was in high school, there was no YouTube. There was no video. You didn't know what was really happening. I didn't probably know the danger I was actually was in as many times I talked back to police when I was a teenager, right? And I don't know what, what I've always wondered is like, is it happening more or is it technology is just giving us this information faster? And I'm like, I can't, I can't, when I see a video, I'm like, I'm not opening it. I'm not opening it. I just can't, my, my, I have to give myself time. I can't watch these things. Like I, right. <laughs> I can't watch them. I can't watch like, it's one thing when you watch a movie, you watch a Terminator and somebody's being mowed hmm. down. You're like, Oh, wow. Right, right, like, right, right. There's nothing when you watch like death for real. Like there's, there's a whole, for me, for me as a, right. in my, and how I feel around that. And I think uh, there's this book, uh, I think you maybe recommended Mark Wolin, uh, it didn't start oh, with you. Yeah, I did you know? that. Like I, my father died before I was born. Like, I, I don't know how, it, what it means to be bathed in sadness for months, three months before I was born. Like, I don't know how it means nice my mom cried herself to sleep, trying to figure out what to do next. Like I was in the womb in all of this, in swimming in sadness, right. swimming in confusion, swimming. And I know that I have a, when, as I read this book, I realized that's why I have a, such an issue with death. Like, I, I don't, I, I have a hard time with death. I know it's coming. I know it's part of life. I get all that. I get all the, the intellectual parts of it, but just when people pass that are connected to me, I have a hard time. And I, and I, I'm, and what I'm learning is that it's connected to how I started this, this world out. Right. You know, how I started in the womb. Yeah. Emotionally connected to whatever that is. I don't even know. I mean, I don't have all the words for it, but the, the technical words, but I do know the feeling. Yeah. Um, and so that, that, that's what I, I'm excited I get to do with this work, right? Because what we see with a lot of young people and definitely there's a book, um, uh, Malcolm Gladwell wrote a book about talking with strangers. Right. And he talks about a lot of police ish- encounters and how this encounter where one person is stressed and the other person is trying to exert power and they're, they're, they're communicating in some different ways. Like, I know how that feels. Like, I, I get anxious, right? And if you're anxious, people think you're, you're, you're hiding something. Guilty. But I'm, but I'm just like, um, as I was thinking about that, this work around these masks is like, well, look, this is what I'm letting you see that mm-hmm. I'm gonna try and say calm, I'm trying to say cool, but then behind the scenes and maybe even not always behind the scenes, I'm like, I'm nervous. I'm straight, I'm sweating. I'm like, I just want to get, I just want to make, okay, do you give me a ticket? Give me, write me a ticket, write me a ticket and let me go. Right. Just don't, I don't want to have a conversation. I don't want to discuss why I was going too fast or whatever, whatever you're saying is wrong is wrong. Just give me the thing. Let me go. And I'm, I'm much more, I'm much less wanting those confrontations than I did when I was a teenager. Cause when I was a teenager, I looked forward to them sometimes. But right. now my heart is like, even when I'm in, like I'm in a cafe, I remember being at Starbucks and seeing you come in and I'm just like, 
Oh. I think I should leave. I think I should leave. And, that, and that's a feeling that, man, you can, it's hard to describe to people if they don't know. But when I try and I just try and say, look, fear is real. If you, if you're being chased by a bear in the woods, you would run. <laughs> right. I mean, well, it may, maybe not, not because you're guilty, but because you're afraid. <laughs> because of fear, heart wrenching, like right. bear, tiger, whatever animal, like whatever that predator apex coming after you because you did nothing, right? And that, and that idea of how do we make space for that? And I think for our young men, when we do these masks, you know, when we when we invite them to make a man, not just young men, but all students all over, what are the things that you can let people see? Right. You gladly let people see what are the things that are behind the mask that you don't get to talk about, man. And when they, when we see, you know, not only just here in Oakland, not only in California, around the country, around the world, people are clear that that we have to put on these masks, and we when we put them on to fit in, to be like, I'm good, that's cool, I'm fine, right? right. And then what we don't, what we often don't, people don't have a space is they say. Okay, let me take off this mask of being fine and good and cool. And now, oh my God. And now when we get to those circles, we get to do that. We get to check in. We get to like, man, this is what this is what's alive for me right now. This is what's like driving my energy right now. And to have people just hold space for that. That's that's beautiful. Hmm. I'm so pleased that you made the connection to Mark Willen's work. Um, and we'll, in the show notes, we'll put a link to that book, as well as the Hafiz poem, as well as to the Mary Oliver Lead poem. But um, uh, that book, It Didn't Start With You, was life-changing for me in many ways, because it helped me make connections to um, what's known as epigenetic trauma, which is a fancy word for what happened to our ancestors impacts us. And um, I want to just sort of pause and acknowledge that what happened to your ancestors is different than what happened to my ancestors. And, and uh, uh, we, I think collectively as a society, among the many, many things that we uh, haven't, still haven't come to grips with is what happened to our ancestors whether your ancestors were forced to flee Ireland because of a famine or for, forced to leave a country in Europe for poverty or pogroms in, uh, in, in Eastern Europe or brought here as slaves or were subject to uh, a kind of massacre of because your ancestors were indigenous to the land. What happens to our ancestors impacts us every fucking day yeah. as a society. Yeah. And, you know, in addition to not necessarily socializing our children to deal with our feelings, we as a society are so uncomfortable with the past. Hmm. That, uh, you know, on the one hand, we deny certain aspects of the past. Yeah. And on the other, what we do is we say, let sleeping dogs lie. <laughs> right? Don't stir it up. Yeah. But, you know, I don't know 
how we heal yeah. unless we reconcile with the experience of our ancestors. Mm. The positive and negative experiences of our ancestors. I don't know how we get past the divide that rips this country apart every day until we recognize um, that, you know, slavery, for example, was a part of the economic foundation of this country, the political and economic foundation of this country. Yeah. 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 You know, yeah. This, the, the, the shining city on the hill was built by enslaved labor. You know, and I think, uh, oh man, thank you. Yeah, thank you for that. I'm gonna just say that. Thank you. It it, it bewilders me mm-hmm. that that still that people are willing to ignore what the atrocities that have happened and want to act as if that their brilliance and their intelligence is only the factors that have allowed them to stand in the wealth, the privilege and the power that they have. And that's, and for nothing else, my work is to continue working with the young men and helping them find their voice and, and helping to inspire. I think that's what I heard uh, Tupac say in one of his talks. He said, I'm not maybe going to change the world, but I'm going to inspire the, the mind of somebody who will change the world. And, um, you know, I just take every one day and say, look, I'm going to give my best today. I'm going to give my, my best today to help young people, definitely our young men in our community, find voice. And because, you know, we have a campaign that's for everyone. It's not just for young men, but our main work is the young men letting them find their voice earlier than I found mine earlier than, you know, 10 years ago in my, you know, my, in my thirties to finally find a space to take off my mask. And um, I think the earlier they can do that, the earlier they realize I'm not okay being stuck in this mask. Yeah. Because if you don't know any difference, then you don't know any different. You don't know there's any other way to feel, to think then you may get stuck there. Let me build on on what you're saying, because um, I think not to take anything away from your experience or responsibilities, but I think it's my responsibility as a white man to call it out. Because I don't know how those systems of oppression change unless the people who benefit from the systems of oppression call bullshit. Um, it, it, It is not enough for folks who are marginalized by those systems to speak up. And God bless you for uh, giving voice to those young men, for helping them find their voices. Um, But, you know, maybe the corollary work for me is uh, to help those who have power leaders to speak up and speak out um, uh, uh, on behalf of the world that they know is possible on behalf of the world that for the majority of us, we want to exist. 
right? Um, uh, you know, as I slip slide my way into elderhood, um, <laughs> which is what I'm really feeling these days, especially as my knee hurts so badly. Um, that's, that's my calling. So I, you know, I want to, I want to tell you what an honor and a privilege it is to have you in my life. Thank you. You too. Uh, I, I, you know, the, the, the karma that brought us together, it was a gift. Yeah. And, uh, I am so happy to have introduced you and your work um, to, to the folks who listen to this podcast. You know, we didn't talk about your journey as an entrepreneur. We didn't talk about uh, uh, all this other stuff, but we'll get there. Yeah. The more important thing, and we'll put notes in the show notes, you know, how to find Ever Forward and all of that stuff. But thank you for the work that you do. And thank you for coming on the show. Yeah. Thank you for having me. And, you know, like the easiest thing that people can do like in this, in this moment is to, uh, to do a recognition of their own mask that they wear. And I, I, I just want to share, like, if you go to, I mean, you'll have in the show notes, there's a website, you can go to the make your mask and just recognize that mask from all over the world. Cause you're not alone. If, if you recognize there's so much more to you, mm. there's just so much more to me. And as, as you and I get to keep knowing each other, I get more comfortable taking off another layer of the mask. And I think it's like there's there's masks on the mask, right? Yeah. And to know that um that I'm not alone, and that's that's a beautiful place to be. If you enjoyed this episode, go to reboot.io/podcasts to listen to all five seasons of our podcast conversations. And leave us a review on iTunes. That's the best way for other people to find and enjoy the show just as you have done. And don't forget to join our mailing list at reboot.io slash sign up so you never miss an episode. Thank you for listening. What does it mean to build organizations of belonging? How can you build an organization safe enough for the whole human to show up at work? In Reboot's newest email course, we discover the hidden power and privilege that can pervade an organization and consider what is needed beyond the HR trends and into matters of the heart to create and sustain real places of belonging for all employees. Compiled and created by the Reboot team of coaches and facilitators, this course is a conversation around the question, how can you contribute to creating an inclusive culture of belonging? The course will unfold via a series of six emails full of content, one email per day over six days. And we hope by the end of the course, you have a sense on how you can relate to belonging to yourself, how you create belonging in your communities, work, home, and life. To learn more and to sign up for free, head to reboot.io slash inclusivity.